together. Okay, so, so that's the new order. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 17. We'll read from verse 1 to 27. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 27. Let us pray. Father, speak to us your truths. We may know that we may bow down in awe and fear of you. Help us, Lord, to not only know your word, but to experience that which has been taught in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 17, verse 1 to 27. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they would not, could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. When Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came to the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him, but to, so that we may not cause offence. Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
the disciples had seen it all. After all, they had seen Jesus heal, Jesus work miracles, Jesus drive out demons. And at this point, Jesus was just taking three of them, closest ones, because he wanted them to learn deeply about who God is. And so he took Peter, James and John and led them to high mountain. But the disciples, these three disciples probably saw that they had seen everything, knew, thought that they had seen everything. Because when Jesus was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun in verse 2 and his clothes became as white as light. They, it didn't elicit very much of a response from the disciples. And then, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus taking them up to the mountain and suddenly his whole person shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as snow. Suddenly, something powerful had changed. And then there was Moses and there was Elijah sitting, standing there talking to Jesus. One would have thought that these disciples, the three of them, would have been awed, would have been frightened, would have been amazed at what they saw. But all that Peter said was, well, that's interesting. Let's build them three shelters. It was almost like a fun game kind of thing. Wow, we see these people and they weren't even surprised. They weren't even shocked. They simply said, huh, okay, let's build them three shelters. It was really quite bizarre. But the truth is that I, I think that Peter, James and John had seen so much of what Jesus was doing. Nothing could surprise them. But it says in verse 5, while they were still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now that brought a very different reaction. It didn't say that the voice thundered. It simply says a voice from the cloud. There was a cloud covering them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. And yet the reaction from the disciples was very different from their reaction when Jesus was transfigured, when Jesus saw Elijah and Moses. The reaction from the disciples was that heard this, they fell face down. Verse, verse 6, they, face, they fell face down to the ground terrified. They fell face down to the ground terrified. It wasn't the, the volume of the sound. It wasn't the sight of anything, it was just a cloud cover. And yet when they heard the voice of God, they realised something that they had not realised before. At that moment, they realised how great, how awesome God is. Something spoke to their hearts that this was not just a miracle worker, this was not just God as in God, but that there was fear and there was terror in them. I'd like to read from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. And this is what Isaiah says of God. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. At that moment, the disciples, perhaps, had a perspective of God. They had a perspective that they were nothing before God. That the nations, will keep, that, keep that passage please. That the nations were like a drop in the bucket. That islands were like fine dust. They realised that they were really small before God. That God wasn't just 
God. He wasn't just working powerfully, but there was something more that was terrifying to them. And they fell on their faces in terror. One of my prayers for us all is that we develop fear of God. Often we come in our prayers, in our quiet time, and yes, we acknowledge that He is God. We acknowledge that He is powerful. We sing about these things and we speak about God's power. But we don't know the how the enormity of who God is. That we are nothing before God. That as we look at the nations around, that the nations are just drops in the bucket before Almighty God. Islands are like fine dust. And we, inhabitants of islands, are nothing at all. This was the turning point for the disciples because at this point they discovered, they realized how great God is to them. It would have changed a lot of their perspectives. It would have changed the way they look at ministry. It would have changed the way they looked at themselves in comparison with each other. It would have given them a perspective that really everything else, they were nothing before God. That God was so enormous, they were nothing. Each of us needs an experience like that, an epiphany from God. It wasn't something great. It wasn't anything that they saw. Just a cloud cover and a voice. It wasn't a thundering voice either. It was a deep conviction in their hearts that they were nothing at all before God. But not just that they were nothing at all before God, but that nothing else was anything before God. That the nations were nothing before God. That their problems were nothing before God. And that they had a God who is so powerful I pray that each of us will have that realization in our lives. The other day, I was just musing about this passage and uh, praying, and then I had my feet up in the chair uh, on the table, and suddenly it dawned on me, oh dear, that's not even how you lounge before God. But a realization that that's just a small thing, but a deep realization that we are talking to Almighty God who rules over all. But that, how does that realization work out in daily life? It's all well and good that we have such an epiphany. We realize how great and how powerful God is. And every day, I think we should pray and ask God to show us how great He really is. Because when we have a view of God that is far greater than anything that we have ever had, that's the beginning of life with God. But then the disciples went down and the next three stories tell us about how these things worked out in the understanding of who God is. First of all, man came to them and said, uh, his son was um, approached Jesus and knelt down and said, Lord, in verse 14, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to your disciples, that, but they could not heal him. Here was a big problem that they faced. It was a young man, demon-possessed, powerfully, I should think. None of the disciples could do anything to set this boy free. What did Jesus say to them? Did Jesus then say, well, this kind of thing, not for you. Huh? You need to be special. You need to be powerful. You need to be very spiritual. Jesus never said anything like that to them. 
First, he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? Basically, Jesus said, well, like that also you cannot do. It was almost like a sense of despair, you know, from Jesus. After all this time, this thing also you cannot do. Guys, you are hopeless. It wasn't as though you need to be super spiritual to be able to cast out demons. And then Jesus said, when the disciples asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus said, in verse 20, because you have so little faith. The problem wasn't about how difficult the demon possession was. The problem was with the disciples' faith. They hadn't realized, they hadn't internalized the power of God. This was an awesome God that the church, that the gates of hell could not withstand. And Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. This was what he meant, that every evil being would be driven out by Jesus, by God, by the church. Problem wasn't with the demons. Problem was with the disciples' faith. And then he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move from here to there. A tiny faith. You don't even need to be super spiritual. Just a little bit of faith. And you could tell a mountain to be moved into the sea. It makes us realize where our faith is. That if only we had just that little bit of faith, we would know the power and the immensity of our God. It is not about us being super spiritual and us having great faith. It is about God, us realizing how powerful and how great our God is. And allowing that to enter our hearts and believing it. Nothing to do with the strength of their faith had to do with their faith in the power of God. Years ago when we were ministering in prison, we initially we did a lot of exorcism, casting out demons, and then the prison got a bit worried because when you do casting of demons, you've got manifestations, people jumping, people falling back, um, um, being slain by the Spirit and all sorts of things. And so the natural reaction of prison was to ban all of this stuff. And I'm glad they banned all of this stuff because there were lots of heroics, uh, exorcists, self-made exorcists doing all sorts of things and chasing demons around. And the de then the prison said, none of this anymore. But we knew that most of our prisoners were demon-possessed. They had a lot of issues in their lives. They had a lot of demons inside them. And if we were not allowed to lay hands and cast out demons and slay people in the spirit, how could we minister? And then we came up with an idea. Sit in little circles so they would not fall back. Falling back was a problem because it looked like assault from the camera. We got our prisoners to sit down in little groups of five. And then quietly, without laying hands, we just held our hands to our laps. We prayed that God would drive out the demons. And the demons were driven out. There was no theatrics, there was no great display of faith, of great heroic deeds. It was simply believing that God could do it and God would do it. And it's for us to, sure you start and you fail, and you start and you can't again, but there's no technique to it. It's just believing that you have a God who gave his life for us, who took from us the curse of the evil one, and therefore the church has no place, the, 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 the Hades has no, cannot stand before the church. 
That's all that it calls for. No theatrics, no heroics, nothing that makes us grander than others. Just a belief in a powerful God. And Jesus wasn't just talking about casting out demons. He was talking about all miracles, miracles of all sorts. He said, if you had that little faith, you could call a mountain, get a mountain to, to walk, to move into the sea. So he was just, Jesus was talking about every kind of miracle. And Jesus was saying, if you just believed in this powerful God, things will happen. I struggle very much with that because I don't have very much faith. In fact, from the description of Jesus, I don't have any faith. I mean, if we can't do these things, then we have to question ourselves. But it's important for us to question ourselves and to ask, do I really believe in a God of power and a God of love? A God who loves people so much that he would do anything for them. But perhaps we could start experimenting, start praying for each other, start believing not the power of your faith, but the greatness of our God. Then see God work miracles. And then the next thing that happened to them as, they, as the disciples walked down the mountain was when Jesus told them about, well, he referred to John the Baptist um, in verse 11. He said, Elijah will come, but they have done with him as they wished. Basically, they killed him. The Son of Man is to suffer at the hands as well. And then verse 12, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands, verse 22, into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Often when our message gets rejected, people start questioning, we start questioning, was I wrong? Was Jesus wrong? Was God too weak? Was God too unloving? Did God not love Jesus? And part of the reason why Jesus took his disciples up to the mountain to see Christ change was that he might convince them that first of all, he had not broken any laws. There he was with Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the prophet of God. And when the three of them were conversing, it means that they had fellowship, that that, God, that, Jesus wasn't, that Jesus wasn't disobeying Moses and throwing his laws away. Moses and Jesus were great friends. They had full agreement. And then Elijah, the prophet, as well. That all of these, the giver of the law and the giver of prophecies, were all in agreement with Jesus. And so Jesus did not break any laws. And we need to be confident of that as well. That at times when we follow Jesus and we say, I really want to live the way Jesus lived, there will be opposition, there will be rejection. You need to know in your hearts that you did nothing wrong. But the next thing is the question of, well, this, does God love Jesus enough? Does God love us enough to help us? Does God, is God frivolous? And God in the cloud said to them, this is my beloved son. God loved Jesus infinitely, and yet Jesus had to suffer. It had nothing to do with God's lack of love. It had nothing to do with God's lack of power. Suffering was inevitable for Jesus and to his, his followers, not because they'd done something wrong, not because God didn't love them, not because God wasn't powerful enough. But God 
that they had to suffer. And then finally, there was this um, question of temple tax. Once again, they had to ask themselves, what is God like? How powerful is God? How loving is God? Now, this was a kind of a frivolous thing. Disciples, the, the collectors, the temple people, asked Peter whether Jesus paid the temple tax. Now, this was another burden, another load that was laden on the people, the common people. Besides the Roman taxes, the temple also decided, I mean, it becomes a trend, right? You, this group collects tax, we also collect tax, everybody collects tax. And so the temple people laid a greater burden on the Jews. First, there was the Roman tax, now there's a temple tax. And so Jesus, referring to the Roman tax, asked Peter, well, Peter, do the free people pay the taxes or do others pay the tax? Clearly, when they think of the Romans, the Romans didn't pay taxes, the Jews paid taxes because they were subservient, they were subjugated by the Romans. They were the slaves, they were the other people, they had to pay taxes. And so Jesus asked the rhetorical question, then if you have to pay Roman taxes because you're a foreigner, how come you've got to pay temple taxes when you're an insider? Pretty dumb. You shouldn't be paying temple taxes because you are a child of God and temple taxes shouldn't apply to you. And then Jesus said in verse 27, but so that you may not cause offense, go and take, go, go to the lake and throw out your line and then catch a fish and that fish will be four drachma coin. This was really a frivolous, non-essential miracle. I mean, like that also Jesus wanted to do. I mean, we, we think of healing, we think of great miracles, but this one, go and catch a fish. Inside the fish got four drachmas so that you wouldn't have to fight. So that you wouldn't have to fight the, Rome, the, the Jewish people. Let's not have one more conflict. Just trust me. But you know, this is an important miracle. Because Jesus was saying to his disciples, you don't always have to pick a fight. I provide for you. You think that they are... You think that these temple people are unreasonable, that they grab, they take money from you? Yeah, that's true, they're unjust. But hey, I can provide for that as well. I want you to know that. You know, that tells us something about our conflicts with each other, our fights often, whether it is at home or in the office or in church. That often we fight tooth and nail for things that we think are essential. And then God gives us unnecessary, non-essential miracles. Ever had a time when you were really upset when someone stole your parking space and then you want to fight back and then God may be saying, hey, down there got another one there, why you fight like that? And then we realise that God does give us unnecessary and non-essential miracles. But it happens all the time. When we fret and we get upset with others for robbing things of us, for making bad things happen to us. And God says, hey, let's not pick a fight over this. It's most unnecessary. I've got something else better for you. Just receive it. I am God who provides these things for you. This unnecessary miracle was important to the disciples. 
to allow them to know that they didn't always have to fight for what their rights were, but that God would provide for them as well. But also help them to understand how loved they were, how precious they were. The other unnecessary, um, unnecessary miracle was at the end of when Jesus had resurrected, and then he prepared a big spread of breakfast for Peter. That was really quite unnecessary as well. And yet it was necessary because it allowed Peter to know how much Jesus cared for him in little things, little miracles that happened. And these allow his disciples to know how precious they are to God. God doesn't just work huge miracles. God works little insignificant things because he loves us very much. These were three things that took place right after Jesus, right after the three disciples came down from the mountain. But it starts with this, a realization of who God is. A deep realization that God is not frivolous, that God is not helpless, that God is not too small for us. That God is more powerful than anything you can even imagine. And God loves you very much. You know, sometimes you have a lot of doubts. Maybe God wouldn't answer my prayer this time. The question is, why not? God loves you very, very much. He wants to help you with your lives. But he also wants us to go out and minister to others. Let's start believing in God. And asking God and ask God to give us an epiphany, a realization of who he is, how great he is. Let us pray. Father, we need a new perspective of you. We say you are God and we say we worship you as God, but we really don't know what we are talking about. We don't understand how enormous you are, how immense you are. We don't understand how small we are in comparison, how small our obstacles are in comparison, how small the nations are in comparison. And Father, we need a new perspective of you to truly know who you are and your love for us. Because God, you tell us that the reason we are so weak is not because the problems are big, but it's because we don't believe you. We don't believe in your love. We don't believe in your power. We don't believe that you are committed to us, that you held nothing back but gave your son for us as well. And we struggle, Lord. We struggle with our lives. We ask, Lord, that you will show us how much you are committed to us. But we ask too that you will cause us to understand that there are times when we go through difficult patches in our lives and you seem to be silent. And your silence doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you have stopped loving us or that you are less powerful than you really are. To place our hands in your hand and to trust you to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. 
We ask, Lord, come and tell us who you are, how great you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's rise.